give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will con shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7.14. This has got to be one of the most quoted uh, and most familiar verses from the book of Isaiah, don't you think? Uh, raise your hand if this verse sounds kind of familiar to you. Yeah, I think it's familiar to, to most of us, to a lot of us. And it gets quoted a lot, especially, I think, at this time of the year. Now that we're in the month of December, like Mike mentioned, we're in uh, the month of Advent. This is actually the second Sunday of Advent. Last week was the first Sunday of Advent. And this quote, and even this graphic that I have, and if you're on YouTube, I just have a simple graphic on the screen that's the verse, Isaiah 7, 14, and there's a star above it. And the, the lithographic, and the, it just has a ring of Christmas to it, right? Is that just me, or does it just like, kind of look Christmassy? I didn't make this graphic, by the way, um, but whoever did chose to put a star to decorate this verse up there. And why? You know, there's no star in the verse at all, but there is a star in the, the Christmas story, right? And so somehow this verse is associated with the Christmas story, and it's a Christmassy verse, so there's a Christmas symbol associated with this particular graphic. So why does this one verse of chapter 7 become so associated with Christmas? And by Christmas, of course, I mean uh, as Christians that we celebrate Christ's birth at this time. And in the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew makes a very direct connection between the birth of Jesus and this verse. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 1. We're going to start there. Matthew chapter 1. And we're just going to read a little excerpt from uh, what we might call a part of the, the Christmas story. In the first chapter of Matthew, he starts off by calling it the genesis of Jesus, or the, the genealogy of Jesus. And he starts off with the first 17 verses going through that. We're not going to read that. Uh, then in verse 18, he comes to this kind of summary of how the birth of Jesus came about. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And here we go. Verse 23, see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. So there's, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack with this package, uh, with, with this uh, passage. 
Um, it's, a, it's a package of a passage. Uh, we're, we're not going to unpack this package of a passage today. Uh, we are, Lord willing, uh, in, the, in the coming months, later in, in next year, going to actually dive into Matthew in depth. But we're, for now, for today, we're going to focus on uh, specifically the connection to Isaiah. And for a lot of you, this, this passage is probably a familiar part of the Christmas story. You know, the angel appearing to Joseph and telling him that Mary is going to be giving birth to this, this son, even though she's a virgin. And then Matthew, kind of after telling that little narrative, Matthew steps in as the narrator, kind of saying, oh, and by the way, all of that happened. In case you didn't miss this connection to Isaiah, this hyperlink, all of this took place to fulfill what Isaiah prophesied long, long ago. I think as, as Christians, we like to read about Christ. So we like to read about the Gospels. The Gospels are about Christ, and we're Christians, so the Gospels are really exciting to us. And so we read Matthew, one of the Gospels, and we see that reference, and we think, oh, that's cool, you know, Isaiah made this prophecy, and Jesus fulfilled it. That's awesome. And then we kind of happily move on with the rest of the story, the rest of the Christmas story, and then the rest of the story of the life of Christ. And that's great. But, but meanwhile, we kind of, we've become really familiar with this one isolated verse, primarily because Matthew quotes it, which is great that, that, that he familiarizes us with that. But how many of you are really familiar with the, the surrounding context of that verse in the rest of chapter 7? Mike is, because <laughs> he studied it with me. I have to admit that I really was not familiar with the context of this passage of that verse, really at all, until I studied it for this, this week. And when I, when I did, I found that there's, there's, there's a lot of context to this verse that we don't really get in Matthew. So today we are going to be looking at that context. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning really just kind of digging our heels into chapter 7 of Isaiah. So go ahead and if you want to flip back to Isaiah and find your way there. And, you know, even though through this study of Isaiah, we're not, Mike and I aren't trying to go in depth on every single verse in Isaiah, but at the same time, we don't just want to study one isolated verse without, you know, the, the context in isolation. So because this verse is so prominent, it is really beneficial to understand the bigger picture and what was happening when Isaiah gave this prophecy and how it relates to the message that he was actually giving at the time. So that verse, the, the verse that's famous is 14. So let's broaden the scope a little bit and just look at the few verses, kind of the, the, I think it's seven verses surrounding it. So we're going to start in verse 10. I have it up on the screen there as well. Starting in verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here it is. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, 
The land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as has never been since Ephraim separated him from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Okay, so first of all, we do see now that the Lord is giving this sign. He says, you know, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, specifically because Ahaz refused to ask for a sign. And then Isaiah seems upset for some reason. And then there's this other stuff about this boy who is going to be born and, and what he's going to eat. And that somehow leads to Ephraim and to Judah and the king of Assyria. That's all just kind of confusing. And, oh, and by the way, who is this guy Ahaz who he's talking to in the first place? And, and why is God talking to Ahaz through Isaiah? This isn't enough context <laughs> to see what's going on. So we're going to have to broaden the scope a little bit more and back up to the very beginning of chapter 7. Because this is really where the scene starts. This, this picks up not necessarily chronologically right after the events of chapter 6 that Mike covered yesterday or last week. Um, but it is the next scene. It's a, it's a shift and it's just the next chunk. Literally the next chapter in Isaiah starts with, with chapter 7. It's, it's a new train of thought. And this really gives the backdrop for what becomes the, really the next major prophetic message in Isaiah uh, in chapter 7. So let's read from the beginning. This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Aram's king, Razim, and Israel's king, Pekah, son of Amalia, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. When it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and, his, and the hearts of his people trembled like the trees of a forest shaking in the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out with your son, Shir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks, the fierce anger of Razim and Aram and the son of Amalia. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Amalia, has plotted harm against you. They say, let's go up against you to terrorize it and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabir's son as king in it. Okay, now it all makes sense, right? Do I follow exactly what's going on here? You can picture it all they're right by the laundry's field. You know, it's, it's all, the context is all there now. now if, if you do understand everything that's going on here, that's great for you. I'm very impressed, and that's awesome. You can probably just take a nap for the next few minutes. But I'm guessing most of you, if not all of you, are more like me. I read through this passage about a dozen times, and then also had to look at some maps and commentaries to really wrap my head around what's going on here. And you know, even though it took some effort, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't just give up and skim over this. Um, because if you understand kind of the political tensions that are being described here, and then the dialogue that happens between God and Ahaz and Isaiah makes a lot more sense. So hopefully over the next few minutes, I'm going to try to help decipher this passage for you. I'm going to bring up a map, and I'm going to try to have some fun writing on the screen. And I do apologize to anyone watching online, because you won't be able to see the map. I'm going to have some graphics with the notes online later, but I'm also going to just try my best to describe what I'm doing. 
But if you do really want to follow along, um, especially if you're watching online, I suggest getting a notepad and just writing down a couple key things as I go, um, because that'll help kind of unlock some of the nuances of this passage and help you track with uh, where, I'm, where I'm going with this. So here's a map of the region of Israel. And this is kind of what the political scene looked like at the time of Isaiah. You have these color blobs kind of representing different people groups and kingdoms, and they're all kind of fighting for territory and for power. And so bear in mind, you know, these blobs kind of fluctuate throughout history in, in size and in, in influence as various empires rise and fall. But this is the general distribution of power as it looked like during the time of Isaiah. And just to see if I can draw on the screen a little bit here. So in case you can't see from there, hopefully you can see my pen. This black outline that I'm making here is the general region of Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms. And in order to, to connect this map, though, to Isaiah 7, there are a few terms that I think we need to clarify and, and dissect a little bit. Because that passage that we just read is just swimming with all kinds of names. Names of people and of cities and of kingdoms. So we're just going to kind of wade through those names a little bit. So first of all, again, the kingdom was divided. So just remember, we have the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom is referred to generally as Judah. So I'm going to circle Judah in green. That's Judah right there. And then the northern kingdom is referred to as Israel. On this map, it's labeled Israel. It's this larger circle above Judah. So you have the northern and southern kingdoms. But Israel, sometimes when you read about Israel, it's referring to both kingdoms collectively, because they're all still descendants of Abraham, right? So there is also a third term that refers specifically to the northern kingdom that we find in Isaiah chapter 7, and that's Ephraim. So if you're taking notes, write that down. That's one of those things that's kind of tricky and easy to forget sometimes. So Israel, Israel equals Ephraim. Okay, and then I'll just label this to you, if you can even read my handwriting. This is Judah. Judah's green, and I circled Ephraim slash Judah in red. And we're going to refer to these, these colors as kind of uh, shorthand uh, going forward. So Judah, south, green, Ephraim slash Israel, red, north. Now, another tricky name that you might have noticed, especially if your translation is different from the one that I was reading from, is that name Aram. You know, and in some translations, you might have, instead of Aram in your Bible, you might have Syria, the name Syria. They're the same word. Aram just happens to be the, the Hebrew word for Syria. Uh, so that's kind of the next thing to write down or just take a mental note of at least is that Aram equals Syria. And I'm going to circle that one in blue. It's kind of to the northeast of the northern kingdom of Israel. Aram equals Syria. Okay, now each of these three kingdoms has its own capital city and its own king. So the capital of Judah 
is Jerusalem. And that's, I kind of covered it up, but there's a little flag on the map and, and Jerusalem is towards the north of Judah, uh, almost kind of really towards the border of Israel slash Ephraim. Um, and the king of Judah at this time is Ahaz. So I'll write Ahaz underneath Judah. Oops. It's not a Z. You have Ahaz, the king of Judah. That's who Isaiah is talking to in this passage. He's the grandson of Uzziah. And you can read about all this too, by the way, in 2 Kings and in Chronicles. It all has more, more details about what's going on here. Um, so let's see. That's Judah. The capital of Israel slash Ephraim is Samaria. So that's another name that might sound familiar, but sometimes gets lost in the context. Samaria is sort of in the... the center, a little bit south of center of, of the kingdom of Israel. And her king is Pekah, son of Ramalia. So Pekah, son of Ramalia. Now in our passage, son of Ar, son of Ramalia. <laughs> In, in this passage, she's referred to as Pekah once, and then for the rest of the time, it's just son of Amalia. So that, that can kind of get a little confusing. But it's, so that's good to just kind of ferment in your, your brain. And finally, the capital of Aram slash Syria is Damascus. And that's up here on the map. And her king is Razin. Razin. So all of these terms, you have Judah, Ahaz, Jerusalem, Israel, Samaria, Ephraim, Pekah, son of Amalia, Aram, Syria, and Mazin. You know, so many names. But if you kind of want to associate, you know, Aram, Syria, and Mazin, anytime you see any of those names, they're referring to that, that blue kingdom. Um, whereas, you know, the Ephraim is the red kingdom, Judah and Ahaz is the green kingdom. So what we learn is that Ephraim slash Israel, the Red Kingdom, is teaming up with Syria and um, Aram against Judah. And red and blue, if you combine those, they make purple, right? So purple, I'll use purple to kind of symbolize their alliance. They have an alliance. And to understand why they're forming an alliance, we have to zoom out the map uh, just a little bit more. So here's a bigger picture of the map. And notice you have uh, Babylonia. Let me just use a laser pointer here. Uh, Babylonia is over here. Media. Those are important kingdoms, uh, empires that come into the story much later on. But they're not really a threat yet to Israel and, and these other kingdoms uh, towards the west. Right now, um, the imminent threat to this area is coming from this smaller orange blob up here. And for those watching, I'm referring to kingdoms that are to, to the east of Israel and Syria and Judah, and to the northeast. Assyria is up in the northeast, and they're expanding. They're expanding to the west and to the north, and they're making a lot of ground in this area. And in response, you have... Aram and Syria. So if we go back to this one, Assyria is coming from, from this direction and from this direction. And that is why these two kingdoms, let me get that 
purple. These two kingdoms form an alliance to try to withstand the coming Assyrian forces and rebel against the Assyrian Empire. Meanwhile, Ahaz in Judah, the little green, green uh, kingdom, he has no interest in lying with those two kingdoms uh, to his, his north. And in fact, he simply plans on paying off the king of Assyria. And you know, rather than try to rebel against him, he's trying to kind of gain the king of Assyria's favor. And we'll read about that again in Second Kings and Chronicles. We see that he's planning to um, pay him off and, and, and hopefully ally with Assyria because they're a much larger empire. So to him, that makes sense. But Ahaz is terrified of this purple alliance that is right at his front door because they're right there. Assyria is kind of based in a further way towards the east, but they're, they're sending troops his way, and he's hoping to get on Assyria's good side. So that kind of kind of makes sense overall, the, the kind of the military and political stuff that's going on. So with all that in mind, let's let's go back to our passage here, and I've um, kind of color coded these terms. I know it's it's kind of small text, but you can see the colors that relate to those same colors that I was using, and I'm going to using those colors offer just kind of a deciphered reading of this passage in a way that it makes sense to me and it might sound silly to you but i am a very visual person and and this just was it was very helpful to me so i'm going to read this in the color version this took place during the reign of ahaz the green king the blue king razine and the red king pekah went to fight against the green kingdom's capital city but they were not able to conquer it here's how it happened when it became known to the Green Kingdom that the Blue King and Red King had joined forces, the heart of the Green King and his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. Yahweh said to Isaiah the prophet, Go out with your son, Shir Jashub, to meet the Green King at this very specific location. Say to him, Calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of this purple alliance, the combination of the blue king and the red king. For the blue king, along with the red king, has plotted harm against you, you the green king. They say, let's go up against the green kingdom's capital city and, and terrorize it and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install a purple puppet king in it who will cooperate with us. Doesn't that, doesn't that make more sense? <laughs> I don't know, maybe you don't need the colors, uh, but I, I did to kind of just visualize what's going on here. And hopefully, you know, one way or another, you get the idea of the, the situation that, that's going on here. This is what's, what's happening when Isaiah approaches Ahaz. Ahaz is terrified, and God's telling him not to be. That's what I highlighted. That's like the main core of Isaiah's message to Ahaz, specifically. Calm down, be quiet, and don't be afraid. And then moving on, Isaiah expounds on this, this core message. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The chief city of Aram is Damascus. The chief of Damascus is Razin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The chief city of Ephraim is Samaria, and the chief of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. So basically, what God is saying is, 
I will not let this alliance overtake you. God's not going to let this, this purple imposter, this, this puppet king that they want to install in Judah, um, they're not going to, God is not going to allow that king to sit on the throne in Judah. And he's kind of assuring him about that, but then he calls out Ahaz's faith. And by the way, the Hebrew is using a pretty clever play on words with a word that means both firm and faith. Um, saying, you know, if your faith isn't firm, then you won't stand firm. And I actually like the CSB translation because it kind of uses a play on the word stand. If you don't stand firm, you won't stand at all. And that kind of makes it really quotable. You can easily quote that verse out of context, right? If you don't stand, uh, if, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. So God's kind of turned this assurance that he's giving Ahaz. He says, don't be afraid, but then he follows up with a warning. He's promised the Purple Alliance won't, won't succeed, but then he also warns him to stand firm in his faith. And then finally, in the next few verses that we get to the prophecy. In verse 10, God tells Ahaz to let him prove the validity of this promise that he's making. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God's giving him an invitation to ask for a sign. No matter how miraculous, no matter how supernatural, as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol, that, this is a very rare opportunity that God's giving to Ahaz. And what's Ahaz's response? Nah. <laughs> no. He just says, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. And at first glance, that response, it might kind of seem like the right response. Right? You know, after, so De Deuteronomy 6.16 specifically says, this is in the law of Moses, do not test the Lord your God. But this invitation by God was not a test to see if Ahaz would test God. It was the command that was given in Deuteronomy was in response to a rebellious sort of testing that the people were testing God and testing his patience. And anytime God actually invites people, it's rare, but there are a few times where God invites people to test him. It's not to test people as to whether or not they're going to take him up on it. He actually wants and expects people to take him up on that and to test him. It's an invitation for God to display his, his power and his sovereignty, but on a human's terms, so that there's no question, so that there can be no basis of, of arguing against the validity of the promise that God is making. It's such a rare and incredible invitation, but Ahaz says, no thanks. No. And, and it turns out, that we, if we look at the context of what's happening, Ahaz really had more faith in Assyria's ability, in the king of Assyria's, and the forces, the military forces of Assyria's ability to protect him from the alliance than in God's ability to protect him. And the fact that he negotiated with Assyria, or at least in his heart was, was planning on negotiating with, uh, with Assyria, shows that he also feared Assyria more than he feared God. And looking at Isaiah's response does make it pretty clear that Ahaz's attitude and his motivation here was, was problematic. 
And Isaiah says in, in verse 13, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of God? I do have this there. So Ahaz is trying to, is trying the patience of God. So because of that, you know, God just decides to give him a sign of his own. And that's where we finally get to the, the famous verse 14, the, the star of the show, uh, where the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. So that's the sign that the Lord is giving, a virgin conceiving and having a son named Emmanuel. But wait a minute. <laughs> okay, because we read earlier in Matthew that Jesus being born was a fulfillment of this prophecy. And that was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. So how does that prove anything to Ahaz? And what does that have to do at all with this whole situation with these different kingdoms and, and all this stuff that's going on? Oh, and hold on, because Jesus is named Jesus, or in Hebrew, it's Yeshua was his name. Yeshua is a fairly common Hebrew name. It's the same as Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves. Emmanuel is a totally different Hebrew word, and, and it means God with us. So if Jesus is named Jesus, how can he be a fulfillment of this prophecy of a boy who is supposed to be named Emmanuel? Oh, and, you know, hold on, what about all this other stuff? After verse 14, that Isaiah prophesies about this boy. None of this is usually included in our Christmas quotes, right? The, the, so I'll just read it again. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. Christmassy? No. <laughs> For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. What does that have to do with Jesus? The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So before he knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good. In other words, you know, while he is a still a young boy, and more specifically, you know, it could be referencing uh, the traditional Jewish age of accountability, which would have been the age of 12. But then, you know, what's up with that curds and honey, uh, which, by the way, I know that might sound like a nice snack, and especially if you're in the North Country, we love our cheese curd, right? And, and honey is good. But this is not a reference, just so you know, to, to you know, kind of feasting on delicacies. This is really a reference to the destruction of agriculture and this type of food kind of being the only type of food that was left and available to eat and with the decline of the population. Um, and that really becomes evident too towards the rest of the chapter. And by the way, we're not going to read the rest of chapter 7, but it's full of that phrase, on that day. Start, it goes full on into day of the Lord language. And if, if you know, on that day doesn't mean anything to you, check out the message from a couple weeks ago. But again, what do curds and honey have to do with, with Jesus? Did he eat curds and honey? Maybe, probably. It was like a common staple. Uh, but let's look at the, the next claim. You know, still before he knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread 
will be abandoned. That's very specific to Ahaz and these two kings that he's afraid of. And Jesus was born hundreds of years later, but those two kings and, the, and those kingdoms fell long, long before that, just a few years after this prophecy, actually. And then God goes on to kind of turn the focus on to Judah and to Ahaz, saying that Ahaz and his people will experience the, the day of the Lord in the form of exile. And he goes on to elaborate throughout the rest of chapter 7 and into chapter 8. And we've talked a lot about, you know, prophesying, what prophecies about the day of the Lord and the exile look like. And that's kind of what this chapter turns into. After this weird promise of Emmanuel, it goes into this whole exile and day of the Lord language. By the way, meanwhile, it does turn out Isaiah did have another son. There's one son mentioned in this passage. But then he had another son. Um, I think he had three, actually. And he had at least two. I think he had three. And he referred to his sons as signs that corresponded to his prophecies. And if you look at chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, Isaiah says, I was then intimate with the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said to me, name him Mahershalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to call father or mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried off to the king of Assyria. <laughs> and that sounds a lot like the boy from chapter 7, right? So is he the fulfillment of the prophecy then, Isaiah's son? Except his name isn't Emmanuel either. It's Mahal Shalav Hashbaz. That's nothing like Emmanuel. And all this happened you know, way before Jesus. So what's going on here? Is this prophecy even about Jesus at all? Should we even be quoting this verse around Christmas? Should it be associated with Christmas? Well, obviously Matthew thought so. But how do we reconcile all these kind of these different pieces to the puzzle? Anyway, that's just some kind of food for thought. I thought I'd just kind of put that out there. Let me know if you figured it out. I'd love to know. Have a great week, guys. No? Okay, fine. I, I won't stop there. Uh, but I, I do have to say that this is a bit of a puzzle, and there's a lot of debate about what's going on here. And it's, you know, naturally there's been a lot of, you know, scholarly debate. And... You know, I'm not here to tell you that I necessarily have a perfect answer to every possible question uh, in this passage regarding this prophecy. However, I also don't think we need to view this prophecy as at all incoherent. Uh, I think you know, sometimes our own vision can be clouded a little bit by our own expectations, but that doesn't mean there's any discrepancy here between the prophecy in Isaiah and the life of Jesus and the claims that Matthew is making or between, you know, what God said would happen and what actually happened. So, first of all, what's going on here with the, the timeline? Um, I think we have to remember, first of all, that, you know, by nature, most biblical prophecy is crafted with multiple layers of meaning and, and full of, of nuances that go beneath the surface. And we talked about this back when we studied Jonah and when we studied, especially when we studied the day of the Lord a couple weeks ago, we talked about this. And in the case of the day of the Lord, I, I made a statement that said that that phrase, the day of the Lord, it can refer to a past, a present, 
or a future event. And even that biblical authors can be using it in all three of those ways simultaneously. And other prophecies can also have similar kind of multiple layers and multiple modes of application. And I think this is one of them. It is a prophecy that had an imminent fulfillment through the exile and possibly even through the birth of um, Isaiah's son, or, and we'll get there in a second. Um, but it also, so it had the imminent, imminent fulfillment as well as an ultimate fulfillment through Christ. And one fulfillment foreshadowed the other. And the prophecies, you know, the prophecy itself is able to interact on both layers simultaneously. So as far as the timeline, something happened, it being about something that happened uh, very soon after it was prophesied as well as hundreds of years later, I think that's maybe the easiest question to answer. And if you've been with us for a while, um, then hopefully this part isn't that big of a stretch of the imagination because we've really been trying to inform our understanding of the prophets as we've worked through them. Um, um, from kind of, I would call it a culturally honest perspective, or just an understanding of how the ancient Jewish writers and readers thought. So that's the timeline. So what about the virgin, though? Because that's kind of the, the big part that really stands out about, about this prophecy. So and this is just kind of another layer to dissect here. And there's two words in Hebrew which can be translated into our English word virgin. One Hebrew word simply means a young woman of marrying age. And in their culture, such a young woman could generally be assumed to also be a virgin. But there's also a more literal term in Hebrew, a, a second word, which corresponds more to our literal use of that word. Which word was used in Isaiah 7.14? The more ambiguous one that simply means a young woman of marrying age. So if, if this prophecy were to only be pointing to the Messiah and nothing else, then why wouldn't the more specific term be used? Is it because Mary wasn't actually a virgin? No. The Gospels are very clear on that. And in Greek, the term that Matthew uses and all that the Gospels use and the Septuagint um, translation of the Hebrew, they use a very specific literal term that's just like our English term. I think the intentional use of the more ambiguous term here actually allows the prophecy to be applied on those multiple layers. And this is really where you will find different opinions and kind of a lack of total clarity as to how exactly that prophecy might have been fulfilled in the short term. So it could have been Isaiah's son. It could have been Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. He was a godly king. But either way, I see this term here, not, it doesn't pose a problem to the prophecy. It, it actually enriches the prophecy because it enables both an immediate fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment through the Virgin Mary. And then finally, we have this name, the name Emmanuel. That kind of seems to be the last big piece uh, to this puzzle. Nobody in the Bible is actually named Emmanuel, at least that I could find. If, you, if, if I'm wrong, correct me. Um, you know, Latinized versions of that name, Emmanuel, are actually popular in some cultures. But none of Isaiah's sons, none of the kings of Israel and, or, or Judah, none of them were ever named Emmanuel. And then in Matthew, you know, Matthew 
describes this angel instructing Joseph to name this baby Yeshua, or Jesus. And in, in the very next verse, after the angel instructs him to name him Jesus, it says, and that happened to fulfill the Emmanuel prophecy. <laughs> so, obviously, he didn't say, Matthew isn't seeing those two different names as a problem. Why not? Well, first of all, you know, I think we can't hold too tightly to the way we use in English. The way we define the word name um, is a little bit different in Hebrew because the, the word for name, which is shem, it also means reputation. It can also mean some other things. Um, and the literal translation of, of verse 14 is, um, or no, of, of Matthew is, she will call his name God with us. She will call his name God with us. Hold that thought and compare that verse to this one. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says this. For to us a child is born. This is another Christmas, very Christmassy uh, passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Oh. And I know I'm stepping on, on Mike's you know, sermon for next week, but I'm not getting into all those, those names necessarily. I, I, I'm kind of skipping ahead to, to chapter 9 here. But this is another messianic prophecy, and this one is, is a lot less ambiguous. It talks about this child being born, and it's that same phrase being used, his name, his Shem, shall be called. And then it lists not just a name, it lists four different names. And they're really titles, more so than names. So it's clear that when Isaiah, and that's really real, that's as far as we're getting into this passage, Mike, we're not going to delve into the specifics. It's just the fact that Isaiah brings up four different titles makes it clear that when Isaiah is talking about this child being born, the ultimate Messiah he makes a reference to this name being called something. He's doing it in a way that kind of assigns titles or roles or attributes. It's something that is about his entire reputation. You know, not just, you know, the name that's on his tax forms. You know, it's, it's his whole you know, essence. The title of Emmanuel, God with us, that can certainly be used to describe the way that God was with Judah, not with Israel, because in the coming Assyrian threat, Israel, the northern kingdom, Ephraim, they were going to be carried off into exile quite a long time before Judah. So during that time, God was with Judah and protected them from the Assyrian threat. But in an even more literal sense, you know, we can see that Emmanuel, God with us, can be applied to Jesus, because when he came, he was quite literally God with us. And of course, his spirit remains with us. In the hope of the exile, you know, Isaiah prophesies about the imminence of exile, but there's always this hope mixed in, and we've seen that all throughout the prophets. The hope is always that a remnant will return. In fact, I forgot to mention this, but Isaiah's son that's mentioned that he's supposed to go out and meet Ahaz with his son at the launderer's field, that son's name means a remnant will return. And that's one of the core hopes of the exile. A remnant will return. Return to what? 
For Israel, you know, it was a return to their homeland. It was a literal return. But in a broader sense, and in the broader sense of the, the theme of exile that we've been talking about, the real hope is a return to God, to a relationship with God in community with each other. And God gave Isaiah a glimpse into this restorative plan, both in the immediate context as well as for his long-term strategy of becoming human himself in order to pay the price of redeeming humans from themselves. To Emmanuel, God with us, is the promise of the recreation of the Eden ideal. It's that coming together, that temple image from chapter 6 of heaven and earth reuniting, where humans and God walked together. It's the restoration of what was lost with sin and the renovation of hearts that have become hardened from sin. God with us, Emmanuel, and that promise is what creation was made for in the beginning. And that's what it will will one day be again on that day of Yahweh. And in the meantime, he has shown us through Christ just how far he is willing to go in order to redeem his creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God. Your, Your power to create and sustain is just awe-inspiring. Lord, we as your creation, your, your people, we fall short of your glory every day and have since the beginning. And yet, you desire relationship with us so much and you desire community with us, and you desire us to have community with each other in you, that you would go to the ultimate lengths in order to restore us to you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would reveal your plan as much as as we need to understand in order to have a relationship with you. We know that our vision is limited, that we often put our plans above yours. But Lord, I just pray that you would soften our hearts and open our eyes uh, to see the truth of what you're doing around us and that we would be humble and willing enough to join you in your mission of restoration and in community and in love. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So can you kill the video? Stop the video. So uh, anybody have any questions for David regarding this uh, Emmanuel passage? I think we ought to take up a collection and commission David to write the color-coded book of Isaiah. I think that would just be like amazing to read through in a color-coded version. But anybody have questions for David on uh, what was shared this morning? We'll give you a chance to ask those now. Or thoughts? Yeah, but the still on. Should I be up there?